0: Let us go before the Lord in prayer. <coughs> Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before the throne this morning again, Lord, to worship you and glorify your name through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who gave his life, who gave himself as a propitiation for our sins. And, Lord, we stand justified, we stand accepted in him. And we thank you, Lord, for the gift of faith. We thank you, Lord, for causing our new birth by your Spirit that we may receive spiritual things, that we may know who Christ is, that we may know who we are and what He has accomplished for us, and that we may know the blessed hope that we have in Him. And Lord, we thank You one more time for the Word that You've given us and granting us this opportunity to gather together around Your Word. And Lord, asking now for illumination. Lord, may You give me understanding that I may say things that exalt Christ and Things that exalt his work. We pray and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. John 8 1 to 11. John 8 1 to 11 says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had said it in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him that they may have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger, as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first, and again is tubed down and wrought on the ground. Then those who had it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And the title of a sermon is Neither do I condemn you or where are the accusers of yours? This story is controversial in that it was not in any of the original authentic Johannine writings of the Gospel of John. It is mostly linked with look and the writing style and grammar according to those who can read these things better than me was certainly not the writing of John. It was not the kind of grammar that John would use. So there are questions that have been raised about its authenticity. And so you see that some Bible versions... Do not include it in the main text. It was a later addition to the text. And some manuscripts put it after Luke 21. Luke 21, 37-38. Let's read that and you see that it may actually have a better fit there. Than where it is in John. Luke 21, 37-38 says. Now. During the day, he was teaching in the temple. But at evening, he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet. That's the Mount of Olives. And all the people would get up early in the morning to come to him in the temple to listen to him. So with that, you can easily go and connect that to the story. And make sense of what is being said. Jesus is not. From what we've been learning so far, Jesus is in Jerusalem and he is talking to the Jews, and the conversation with the Jews continues after verse 12 of chapter 8. So, this is an addition that does not flow well with the story. But if you read more about this, you're going to find that there's a lot of diversity. To the placement of this story. But we shall not devote much time to that. Since God is sovereign. And we have it. It means it is something that we need to know about Jesus and the gospel. And it is not necessarily that the story is false. But that it was not written by John. And does not appear to flow with where we are in the book of John as we'll see when we get to verse 12 after this story, which will be our teaching, the Lord willing, next week. So since it has the name of Jesus, we're going to preach the gospel from it. And the account of the story is typical story of Jesus. It is the kind of story that will be associated with how Jesus interacted with sinners. So from that we have the profile of who Jesus is. We have the profile of the gospel. And I think we have enough material to justify preaching the gospel from it. But to the story. We have here recorded for us another encounter of Jesus with the Jews. And the Jews are at it again trying to find something To accuse Jesus so that they may get rid of him. They are working very hard. As we have had and seen from the many different encounters. That they have had with Jesus so far. They can't see Jesus and leave him alone. They are both attracted and repelled by Jesus. There is something That definitely attracts them about the person of Jesus. And yet there's something offensive about him. And this drives them crazy. And yet they can't help but continue to follow him. (laughs) They have a love and hate relationship with Jesus. And so we are told in verse 3 of John 8. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and when they had sat in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. So they claim to have caught this woman in adultery, and yet they do not bring the other party. And that is strange. If they caught her in the very act as they claim, they should have caught the other partner in crime too and brought them together. It seems the ringleaders of this plot, the Pharisees and the scribes, had plotted or connived with the guy who escaped. The story, the construction of the story is fishy where is the guy, where is the man with whom this woman is supposed to have committed adultery with? Did he overpower them and took off running? But they, of course, found an easy and weak target in the woman. And so they dragged her to Jesus and set her in their midst so that she would not escape. You don't miss that. They gathered around her. They put her in their midst so that she may not escape. And this crowd is, of course, excited. They are excited to see a sinner. How people love to see someone who has been labeled a sinner. How people love to see someone who has been labeled a murderer. Someone who has been caught in adultery. So they are busy saying and shouting all kinds of things, all kinds of obscenities against her. And I remember when I was about 12 or 14 years old, seeing a woman who had been caught in adultery with a neighbor's husband. The wife of the neighbor who rented next door to us used to live in the rural areas in Zimbabwe. And for economic reasons, the wife lived with the kids in the rural areas, and the husband, because he had the job, lived in the city. Once a month, the husband would go to the rural areas to visit his family, and this was a normal arrangement for many families. But this arrangement also caused problems for some families. The husband... Ended up dating or even marrying some other woman. So one day, the women on a part of the street, having caught wind of the infidelity of this husband, ganged up against his mistress when he was away. And they beat her very bad. I saw it. I actually saw it. She was not killed, but she got a serious beating. And the idea was to send the message that the women did not tolerate that kind of behavior around their own families and around their own husbands, lest they should also fall victim if they were to be away from their husbands and so this was a way to take care of each other and sticking together as women. But I said that to say, when this other woman was caught in adultery, everyone On our street was out to make a public spectacle of her, to humiliate her, and to stone her, and to warn off other potential predators. I saw women who were holding half bricks, and some with bricks, like like a full brick, (laughs) trying, if they had opportunity, to throw one at her. And if she had been caught by any one of those, she would have been killed. And so in our story, we have this woman who is similarly accused and she is in serious trouble. Her life is in danger because of the mob and they want her taken out. But beyond that, they think they have found a perfect bait to use against Jesus that they may cause him to stumble and to accuse him. But every time... That anyone tried to play tricks with Jesus, they always lost. (laughs) They were always humbled. And any who think they shall play tricks with Jesus on that day will always lose. It's guaranteed you always lose when you try to play tricks with God. The Jews want to discredit Jesus as a teacher. They are thinking They have this plot. If he condemns the woman, then he would lose the support of the people since he seemed to always side with the weak and the despised. But if he let the woman to go, then he would have broken the law of Moses. That says, if someone was caught in adultery, they were supposed to be stoned to death. And so, they would condemn him for not following Moses. And if he condemned her to die, potentially that would also get Jesus in trouble because as a Jew, he was not supposed to pronounce a death sentence on anybody without the permission of the Roman prefect, the governor of Judea. So that would cause trouble with Rome. So they are pushing to put Jesus in a conundrum by using the law wrongfully to accuse both the woman and Jesus. So they are using the law to accuse the woman, but they are not stopping there. They want to use the law again to try and make Jesus guilty. But this is not new to them or Jesus. They have been doing this since Jesus showed up on the scene, as we learn from Matthew 22. Let's go there. Matthew 22. Matthew 22, verses 15 to 46. We're just going to read it. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. (laughs) That explains it, right? And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of man. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They are playing again with Jesus and the law and trying to get Jesus in trouble with Rome. But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. When they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. The same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies, having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother as we just been learning also from the Tamer and Judah story. Now, there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, that's the question, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. So they think they have come up with the most difficult question ever conceived. Jesus say, answered and said to them, You are mistaken. You are foolish. Not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage. But are like angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead... Have you not read what was spoken to you by God saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitude had this, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, yet to trip Jesus again. Then one of them, a lawyer, Elias asked him a question, testing him and saying, Verse 36, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? They're always trying to trip Jesus with the law. Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor. As yourself. On these two commandments. Hang all the law and the prophets. While the Pharisees were gathered together. Jesus asked them. Saying. Verse 42. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him. The son of David. He said to them. How then does David in the spirit. Call him Lord. Saying. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool." If David then calls him, Lord, how is he his son? (laughs) And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day, or did anyone dare question him anymore. They're trying to play with Jesus and they don't know who Jesus is. And Jesus is able to answer every question. And he, when he asks them who he is, what do you think about the Christ? Why does David call his son his Lord? They have no answer for it. But the son of David is David's Lord because he is the God-man. He is both God and man. And according to his humanity, he is the son of David. But according to his deity, he is Lord. And that's he who is talking to them. And they have no answer for that. But the Jews have not stopped plotting (laughs) to try and entangle Jesus. But as always, he outsmarts them, and he beats them at their own game. Job 5, 12 and 13. He frustrates the devices of the crafty, so that their hands cannot carry out their plans. He catches the wise In their own craftiness. And the counsel of the cunning comes quickly upon them. That's what is happening. So Jesus seemed to always be slippery in their hands. They could not stick anything to him. And they could not lay their hands on him either because his hour had not yet come. And any such who are in Christ cannot have any charge sticking on them. They are the non-sticky pan. Non-sticky pan. For Jesus is their defender. Jesus is their defender. And we're going to work a lot of theology from that. And so the Jews purposefully draw Jesus into the controversy By stating what they want done to the woman. They narrow their argument so as to put Jesus in a corner. And say in verse 5. Now Moses, listen Jesus. We are going to tell you what to do with the woman. We want you to answer this for us. Because Moses says in the law. Moses commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? So they are pitting Jesus with Moses. And here's what Moses said in Deuteronomy 22, 22 to 25. This is what Moses said. Deuteronomy 22, 22 to 25. If a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, then both of them shall die. They didn't bring the other guy. <laughs> the law of Moses says, to bring both of them, the man that lay with the woman and the woman, so shall, so you shall put away the evil from Israel. If a young woman who is a virgin is betrothed to a husband and a man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones The young woman, because she did not cry out in the city. And the man, because he humbled his neighbor's wife. So you shall put away the evil from among you. But if a man finds a betrothed young woman in the countryside, and the man forces her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. Leviticus 20.10 the man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So this is what Moses says. So the Jews want to see if Jesus has a different opinion to what Moses wrote. And they want to see how he is going to wiggle his way out of this one. So they say, but what do you say? What do you say? (laughs) This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger, as though he did not hear. So this question, as I said, is for them to find Occasion for them to find opportunity to accuse Jesus so that they may discredit him whichever way. The goal is to discredit Jesus by any means necessary. This test by the Jews is designed with no correct answer. It is no correct answer. Whatever answer one gives is supposed to be the wrong answer. See that? (laughs) That is how they have crafted it. In their imagination. But the Lord stood down as if ignoring them, as though he did not hear them, and wrote on the ground with his finger. And he did this twice. But in spite of the many speculations, we do not know what he actually wrote on the ground. If you read people, they will say all kinds of things. But we are not told exactly what he wrote on the ground. But he wrote something on the ground and we know that he ignored them. (laughs) Verse 7. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. So look at this. The Jews are annoyed by Jesus because he is ignoring them. When they continued asking him, they continued pestering him with the same question, and Jesus continued to ignore them. So they are starting to get married, Jesus. But Jesus raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. They are trying to catch Jesus with Deuteronomy 22. Jesus responds with Deuteronomy 176 to 7 This is what Deuteronomy 17, 6 and 7 say. Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. But listen to this. The hands of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death. So if you are a witness to a crime that was worthy of death, you as the witness were the one required by law to pick the very first stone and stone the person. And then afterward, the hands of all the people, so you shall put away the evil from among you. The scribes and the Pharisees apparently are not the ones who caught the woman in the very act. So they were not witnesses to the act. And they did not bring any witnesses. And yet they wanted Jesus to condemn a woman without the required number of witnesses as the law commanded. So again, instead of tripping Jesus with the law... They are the ones who are being proven to be perverse, to be the lawbreakers. The Pharisees and scribes were not following the law either. The law said that the hands of the witnesses, as I said, shall be the first to cast the first stone on the one who is guilty, and then the rest of the people. And Jesus, knowing what the law actually said, Because he is the one who gave the law (laughs) and used it rightly against them like he did with the devil. The devil, remember, he came, he was trying to quote the scriptures, quoting from Psalm 91, trying to tempt Jesus, and Jesus used scripture to neutralize the devil. So he disarmed them. Jesus disarmed them and said he based on Deuteronomy 17. He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. So Jesus turns things around and says, now let's look at your qualification. Are you qualified to actually pick a stone and stone someone because of sin? Because if we have to do that, guess what? We also have to do that with you because you too are sinners. (laughs) So the text says, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first, And again he stooped down and wrought on the ground. Then those who had it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the orders even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. And so those who heard what Jesus said, they got convicted by their conscience. Their conscience was plagued with guilt because they discovered that they too were sinners. But look what Jesus did not do or say. Jesus did not say, you too have committed adultery. And of course, they had committed adultery given Jesus' understanding of what adultery is. He says, if you look at a woman with lust, you have committed adultery and you are worthy of death. Jesus appealed to them as sinner's period and said, you think you are righteous? Let us see. <laughs> Let us see how righteous you are. And there are many Christians who are quick, to cast the first stone when the sins of others have been made obvious. They think that the very open sins of others are worse sins than their more respectable and private sins. But Jesus says, no, sin does not work like that. And God certainly does not work like that. He who is without sin among you So that's a universal statement. That's a global statement. It's saying all men are sinners. Many people have respectable sins. These are sins committed by respectable people. Good looking people. Powerful people. People who seem to have all things together. Money sometimes is used to cover a multitude of sins. Some people have not had to do certain sins because they had money and that money prevented them from doing certain things that other people without money had to do. And because of that, they actually think by not doing these things that other people have done, they are righteous in themselves. And when people do that, they mistake God's grace in covering their own sin for their own goodness and obedience and righteousness. And so they are quick to attack those whose sins have been exposed. Marriages—we are talking about adultery. Marriage is together not because. People are buying chocolate for each other every day. Or because there's a particular program, some seven-step program to hold marriages together. There's no booklet that holds marriages together. They only hold together by God's grace. And according to what God has purposed to accomplish in the life of a person. Are there things that we can do to get things better in our marriages? Yes. But let us not think that those who are divorced are worse sinners than us. And here's the point. There is absolutely no sin that is beyond your ability or my ability or your capacity to do if God gives you over to it. Not a single sin that you can't do if God gives you over to it. You'll do it tonight and I'll watch you on the news. I'll see it on the news. I'll read about you in the Columbus Dispatch. So we give glory to God and say thank you Jesus for keeping me from stumbling. But Jesus does not care for respectable sins. Sin is sin Even if one is not sinning in the way that is so open and blatant. The respectable sins will send one to hell as much as the blatant sins. I don't know if I should talk about this. Because we have a lot of people. People have a lot of complicated lives. Marriage lives. They we married to this person and then they broke up and then they end up getting married to this other person and before they were saved and then they have a mess there and they don't know how to resolve it. And then f- finally or suddenly they find out that God has a call on them and God calls them to himself and then they realize their sin. They realize that all their life is a mess and they're trying to correct it. And in the process of trying to correct these things, they end up causing a whole lot mess. They end up causing a lot of hurt. A, a lot of brokenness in families and relations. And then by the end of it all, they realize that they've made more mess than they were trying to clean up. And my point is, God's people, the reason why you need Jesus is because you are a mess. The reason why you need Jesus is because... You are an adulterer and an adulteress in whatever aspect you may think of. Because adultery, the biggest problem with adultery is not adultery in itself, but it is a type of your hallowed and infidelity against a holy and righteous God. That is the point. So when Jesus comes and he is calling you to himself, he is calling you, as a sinner with all your mess. And he is saying come to me and I will give you rest. You who are weary and heavy laden of your sin. If you go and try to correct your life and think that that's what is going to make you righteous before God. Then you will never be righteous before God. There is only one way to be righteous before God. And it is to come to Christ and possessing the righteousness of Christ that is by faith. And if God intends to do something different in your life, He's gonna bring you to that point and He'll give you the grace to do that which is pleasing in His own sight. So what happened to this, to the scheme of the Jews of trying to trip Jesus? <laughs> to try and trip and entangle Jesus with the law. It turned up on them. It lost steam. Their sails lost the wind. The hunter became the hunted. They were hunting Jesus. But they became hunted. And they had to leave Jesus alone. Jesus one more time confounded his enemies. Jesus is God and he is the wisdom. And he is the word of God. You cannot expect to win any argument with Jesus unless you are foolish. But we have the gospel here. We have the gospel here. We have the teaching of the gospel. And the teaching of the gospel that we have is the intercession of Christ. And we have to develop that theology because it's a very important aspect of the gospel. Let's go back to verses 10 and 11 of John 8. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. I need to draw your attention. Because we are talking about intercession. We are going to be talking about the intercession of Christ all the way to the very end. The two times that Jesus spoke in this story, he was standing. The two times that Jesus spoke in this story, he was standing. Verse 7. First in verse 7. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up. and Say to them, Jesus, you don't need to get up to defend the woman. But he raised himself up and then he responded to them and said, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at first. And of course, in verse 10, in verse 10, Jesus again raised himself up. And then he said, woman, where are those accusers of yours? What is that saying? The woman was indeed guilty of the crime because Jesus said to her, Go and sin no more. So Jesus acknowledges that the woman indeed was guilty of her crime. The accusation against her was true. She actually had committed adultery. But unlike the Pharisees and the scribes who wanted to condemn her to death, Jesus does the opposite. He does not condemn her because he came to save that which was lost. He does not condemn her because he is the good shepherd of the sheep and he has to gather all his lost sheep. To be a lost sheep means one is lost in sin it does not mean that one is lost in the Amazon basin somewhere with no GPS directions to get back home. No, it means they are completely sold out to sin and they have no ability to recover themselves and that is why the, the good shepherd, the good shepherd of the sheep has to go looking for them. The woman is a lost sheep. And the law condemns her as an adulteress and she is supposed to die. You got to get that. because we are working on gospel now. There are not two ways about it. The woman is guilty and she must be stoned and she knows it. And the Jews know it. And the law knows it. And Jesus knows it. But something happens. Oe accusers meet with Jesus. Most importantly, the law meets with Jesus. Because it is the law that is condemning the woman. Moses meets with Jesus and the law is a servant of Jesus. The law does not tell Jesus what to do. It is Jesus who tells the law what to do. The law testifies of Jesus. And the law is a babysitter to bring his people to himself. The law is a babysitter of Jesus. The law is an employee of Jesus. The law is God's bulldog, as Pageon would say, to back his people to Jesus. And so the law brings the woman to Jesus. Do you see that? It is the law in the hands of the Pharisees and scribes As a babysitter that brings the woman to Jesus. And by that it rightly performs its function. But as soon as one gets to Jesus. As soon as one gets to Jesus. When the law brings you to Jesus. It brings you there as a condemned sinner. The law condemns you as a sinner who is worthy of death. But as soon as one gets to Jesus. Jesus says. Where are the accusers of yours? (laughs) Has no one condemned you? What is that saying? The law can only accuse you to be an adulterer or an adulteress only before you get to Jesus. The avenger of blood could only chase you before you got to the seat of refuge. But as soon as you get to the city of refuge, guess what? The avenger of blood has to retreat. So the law caught you in sin and it prescribed death by stoning. It is, I say, the Pharisees and the scribes, these are representatives of the law. And they are right that the woman must be stoned. And so the woman again, like Barabbas, is at the point Of death. If Jesus says, let's stone her, the woman is stoned. And so, silently, she weeps and she cries. And like Apostle Paul, like Barabbas, she says, wretched woman that I am. Who shall deliver me? She also needs a who? Who shall deliver me from this body of death? But the woman cannot be stoned. The woman cannot be stoned. Just as Barabbas could not be condemned to die, even though he was worthy of death. Just as they are plotting for her to be condemned and to be stoned, God shows up in the person of Jesus, joins her to Jesus, and brings her to Jesus. What a wonderful thing for you That at the point that you are supposed to be condemned to death, you are brought to Jesus. (laughs) They brought her to Jesus, but it is God who brought her to Jesus. They brought her to Jesus, but it is not they who brought her to Jesus. It's God who brought her to Jesus. She belongs to Jesus, and this is how she came to Jesus. All who come to Jesus... Always come to him in the context of their own sin. You come to Jesus in the context of your sin. Your particular sin. Your particular situation of life. Different expressions of sin in your life. And it so happened for this woman that she was caught in adultery. It so happened with the Samaritan woman that she had had many husband's. And she had a living that was her own context, and it happened for Barabbas that he had just murdered people. But in all the cases, the situation remains the same, is Jesus standing in their place. But somehow, whatever their sin situation, they find themselves in a conundrum. Sin puts you in a situation that you can't wash off by yourself. They don't know what to do with it. They find themselves with complicated sinful situations that are impossible to resolve, humanly speaking, without making a mess of things. But this is how God brings his people to Jesus. He gives them situations of life that are difficult or impossible to clean up by their own effort by their own resources, by their own detergents, that they may run to Christ. That's the point. That is the point. If God is doing it, it's not the devil doing it. He gives them strong convictions that cannot be rubbed off with wine or with some smoke. But the woman has more and great hope than she knows. She has a lot of hope than she knows. She has been brought to one who has greater authority than the law. She has brought to one who can remove her curse. The one who has come to remove the sting and curse of the law. The crowd, the crowd has unwittingly brought the woman to her city of refuge. (laughs) It is called God's sovereignty. That which was supposed to destroy her has become her refuge. As Jonah was swallowed by the fish, and yet it preserved him and took him to his destination. The woman is now in the city of refuge. And once the woman gets to the city of refuge, the avenger of blood cannot get to her as to kill her. Once the woman gets to Jesus, The law cannot accuse her. The law has no more power. It has no jurisdiction over her. One who is in Jesus. And that is the basis of Jesus saying, Where are thine accusers? Has anyone condemned you? He knows they are trying to condemn her. He knows that. But Jesus is pronouncing a judgment of not guilty. And that is the same theology that Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, 1 to 4. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The woman is in Christ Jesus. And where are thy accusers? No more accusations for anyone who is in Christ Jesus. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For what the law could not do. No, I skipped verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free. The woman has been made free from the law of sin and death, from the law of adultery and the stoning to death. And it's Christ Jesus who has rescued her. For what the law could not do, the law could not set her free. The law could never say, you are not guilty of adultery. But this is what God has done. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. In the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So the woman is in Jesus. The woman is elect. The woman is chosen of God. The woman is no more different than the Samaritan woman. How else could she escape the condemnation of death unless she was chosen of God? There's no other way that she can be set free unless she is elect. That's the only way. And because she is in Christ Jesus, and because she is in Christ Jesus, and she is in union with Christ Jesus, He says in verse 11 of John 8, No one condemns me, Lord. (laughs) There's no one who condemns you. That has to be your testimony. In spite of your sin, the testimony of everyone that is in Christ who has run to Christ for refuge is no one condemns you. And Jesus said to him, Neither do I condemn you. (laughs) Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So if you have come and sought refuge in Christ, no one should accuse you of being a sinner anymore. And this has to be the testimony of every child of grace. Not being condemned in Christ does not mean you are not an adulter anymore. You still struggle with your sin. But God has made a legal pronouncement of your status before him And says, Neither do I condemn you. And that's the gospel. So the testimony of every child of grace has to be always No one condemns me, Lord. No one condemns me, Lord. And yet Jesus acknowledges that you have sinned against him. He knows that you have sinned against God. And yet he says, Neither do I condemn you. What is that saying? We need to work these statements Because we have a tendency to just read and go past them. What is that saying? Neither do I condemn you. Jesus is saying. He has the higher authority over the law. The law has already condemned the woman. And if things end this way, the woman is in serious trouble. So Jesus has to make some other pronouncement which is higher and above what the law is already saying about the woman. So Jesus is saying, my word on you is the final one. If I don't condemn you, there's no one else who has the power or authority to condemn you. The law has to listen to what Jesus says and to submit to him. Jesus is the righteous judge whose testimony is true and when he justifies you, you are justified forever and no one can and is able to bring a charge against you. And that means even yourself, Sister Becker, you cannot bring a charge against yourself. In spite of your many stumblings, between now and the grave, you can't condemn yourself. No one can change the standing that God has already given you in Christ. The woman, look at this. The woman was declared not guilty, even though she was guilty. She was declared to be righteous. So if you are declared to be righteous, that is what it means not to be condemned. And that is a scandal, Jesus. And that sounds like the gospel of grace. And we need to work some understanding about the gospel that a lot of people and preachers don't get. About the ordering of salvation. From this story, see that the command to go and sin no more was not the basis or the reason of her forgiveness. Go and sin no more is a command to repent from a way of life. But her not being condemned was best first and foremost in that she came to Jesus. Hear that? You do not hear me. Jesus did not say, repent and then I'll forgive you. Jesus said, I do not condemn you. I have justified you. And on that basis you stop going crazy. Remember, Jesus too never condemned the Samaritan woman for her many husbands. Jesus just saved her. What is the point? The point is that forgiveness of sins is solely on Jesus alone and not on the response of the one who is being forgiven. Jesus does not forgive you because of your response. You respond because you have been forgiven. A person who is not forgiven cannot repent. You're going to hear that. A person who is not forgiven cannot repent. And a person cannot be forgiven unless they are elect. Chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. You can't be forgiven unless you are elect. And you can't repent unless you've been forgiven. The woman is chosen, and so she is forgiven. The response of the sinner, hear me. The response of the sinner, Sister Baker, Sister Dessau, your response to come to faith in Christ is not the basis why you are justified. That does not justify you. That is not the reason of you being forgiven. Faith and repentance. Assume that one is already forgiven in Jesus. Otherwise God will never grant them to you. Faith and repentance are gifts from God. You can't believe in Christ unless God gives you faith as a a gift. And you can't repent unless God gives you repentance as a gift. So faith and repentance are gifts from God and are given to those who are justified in Christ. And so the woman is commanded to sin no more because her sins have been forgiven. Neither do I condemn you is an indicative statement. We have talked about indicative and imperative. The indicative says this is who you are. This is what Christ accomplished for you. He justified you by his death on the cross. You are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. God has sanctified, justified you. Perfected you in Christ is who you are. That's the indicative. The imperative says, because of who you are, then do this. And in this story, Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. That is saying I have forgiven you. And based on that, you go do this. You do this not to be forgiven, but because you are forgiven. You understand that? So she has to go and change a pattern of life so as to conform to her forgiven state. She is not doing these things to be forgiven. She is doing these things because she is forgiven. So the command or imperative to sin no more is established by the very fact that she has been forgiven. But let us talk about the intercession of Christ. Because this is all the intercession of Christ. Because it is in the text. And it is important to our understanding of the gospel. I said earlier that in both cases that Jesus spoke to defend the woman, he was standing. Don't miss that. He was standing. Why? Because he was the advocate. He was standing as the defense lawyer. First John 2, 1. First John 2: one says, "My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. What is an advocate? The Greek word for that is paraclete and para means one who comes alongside to help paralegal someone who helps to work in the offices of the lawyers they help preparing the cases and stuff we have a paramedic we have a paratrooper para police and jesus is the advocate Jesus said to the disciples, when he goes to the father, he will send another comforter, an advocate, a paraclete, in John fourteen sixteen. Another helper, a family lawyer, that's the idea. It's another advocate, a comforter, an advocate who represents the family. So Jesus is sending another comforter, another advocate. The Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit also is an advocate. He makes intercession for you. Jesus also makes intercession for you. The emphasis in 1st John 2 1 is legal advocacy. It's legal. It's legal. We have an advocate with the Father. But the legal advocacy of Christ is placed on His righteousness. Can you hear that? It is placed on his righteousness. So the only reason why Christ is able to intercede when you sin is because of his righteousness. Which means the Pope cannot intercede for you because he has no righteousness. By which he can stand before the throne of God and say, "Forgive, stand because of my righteousness. The Pope can't intercede. So the Pope is not the vicar of Christ. We're sending him this message after we're done. So, the intercession of Christ is effective because he is a righteous advocate. He is the righteous advocate, and he alone has the merits to plead your case before God and for us to be forgiven. So, you see, then it is important that we stress that Jesus was also righteous in his life as. In his death. Because if Jesus was not righteous in his life. Then he can't be the righteous advocate. But listen to this. An advocate has to defend his client standing. And so Jesus stood up two times to defend the woman. Jesus stood up two times to defend the woman. But just maybe that you think I'm making it up is the bigger things I'm making up. I, I, I can see by a look. Where else do we see Jesus standing up to defend his people? X 7. 52 to 60. X 7. 52 to 60. And this is the story of Stephen. Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit. And he is preaching. And reading the riot act to the Jews and telling them about their history and linking it to Jesus. And Luke records verse and says, verse 52 to 60. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. What was Jesus doing when Stephen saw him? Jesus was standing. Why was Jesus standing? Because he was defending Stephen. Defending him against what? Against the charge of blasphemy. Stephen was stoned for blasphemy. And Jesus stood up. We know the scriptures say of Christ. That he sits. After he accomplished our salvation. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. But. In Acts 7, Jesus is standing, and he is standing in the context of a legal case. Stephen is in trouble, and he is being accused of blasphemy, and Jesus stands up as his righteous advocate, and he defends him. Okay. Sister Baker still thinks that I made that one up. So let's go to Zechariah chapter 3. Verses 1 to to 5. Zechariah chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plugged from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I'll clothe you with rich robes. And I said, Let them put a clean tabern on his head. So they put a clean tabern on his head, and they put the clothes on him. And angel of the Lord stood by who is the angel of the Lord that's Jesus that's Jesus what did he do he was standing by when Joshua the high priest was being accused by the devil he stood up and defended Joshua and this is how he defended Joshua he rebuked the devil but not only that He removed his filthy garments, which is a type of his sin. But not only that, he covered him with his own righteousness. Jesus interceded for Joshua based on his own righteousness. The new clothes given to Joshua. So what are we saying? We are saying that there is now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who have run to the city of refuge. Jesus Christ is our righteousness. He is the righteousness that was put on Joshua. Jesus did not deny, the angel of the Lord did not deny that Joshua was wearing filthy garments. Jesus did not deny that Barabbas was a murderer. Jesus did not deny that the woman had been caught in adultery. But he stands anyway. He has to stand in the place of his people because he has come to remove their filthy garments and to cover them by his own robes of righteousness. And so in Romans 8, 31 to 39, Apostle Paul would then say, what then shall we say to these things? What shall we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for you, if all the power and mighty and righteousness of God is for you, Sister the cell, who can be against you? They can be against you, but they can do nothing. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If God did not spare his own son, his greatest possession from eternity, he is the most treasured of the father. And he gave that. And now he says, from the greater to the lesser, he says, if God gave his most important and treasured possession in his son, how can he not give you all these other lower things? If I can give you a bag full of diamonds. (laughs) I have some diamonds. What is it to me to get you an iPhone? It's nothing. That's the point. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? No one. Why? Because it is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? Nobody. No one. It is Christ who died. And furthermore, is also a reason who is even at the right hand of God doing what? Seated, having finished the work of salvation, but also standing, interceding for his people. Who also makes intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. Even the sword cannot separate you from Christ. They may behead your head, but that won't separate you from Christ. As it is written, For your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. For I am persuaded, the apostle says, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, even your sin that is yet to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, do you see what the apostle has done? He has classed all created things into two, the visible and invisible. The invisible, And the visible. And he says. Even of all those things that are invisible to you. They can't do anything to you. As to separate you from Christ. No height, no depth, nor any other created thing. Shall be able to separate us from the love of God. Which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the love of God for us is in Christ Jesus. So you have to pull Jesus from God. To pull us from Christ. Impossible. And so those preachers who say salvation can be lost, they need to hear our Jesus. They need to hear our gospel. Hebrews 7, 24, 26. But he, that's Christ, because he continues forever, because he lives forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Christ is interceding as a high priest because it is the high priest Who intercedes, who stands on behalf of his people before God. And because his priesthoods are unchangeable, he is able, he is able to serve to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become Higher than the heavens. So in conclusion. Where are thy accusers? Has anyone condemned you? That's Jesus. No one. (laughs) No one Lord. The law can't condemn one. Who has come to Christ. The law cannot condemn one. Who has run to Christ. And as soon as. Christ shows up. Whatever condemns you, whatever is trying to condemn you, whatever is accusing you, has to retreat. It has to retreat. If you have many sins like me, I have more than a semi of sins. There's no other way not to be condemned. There's no other way. It doesn't matter. If everything of yours was perfect, your marriage was perfect, your life was perfect, Everything was perfect. You still have a big issue. You still need Jesus. There's no other way not to be stoned other than running to Jesus. There's no other way to clean yourself up other than going to Jesus and having him to command a change of garments. See that the woman never said a single word in her defense. The woman. Never try to defend yourself. And such is the gospel. Once you are in Christ Jesus, you shall never ever need to defend yourself. You shall never have to defend yourself for any sin that you ever committed. For he will speak for you as we have been seeing. So be quiet. When you come to God, be quiet. And let Jesus do the speaking. He is the wisdom of God. He knows how to lay all your enemies to shame. He knows how to lay them down to rest like puppies. And if Jesus fails to defend the woman, he can't defend you. But if Jesus defended the woman, Jesus has also defended you. Jesus has defended the case that was against his church of adulterers and adulteresses. Praise the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you as those who were guilty of adultery. Those who were condemned to die by the law. And yet, Lord, by your grace, by the power and intercession of Christ, you stood up and you defended us. And you said, does anyone condemn you? Where are thine accusers? And our testimony is, no one condemns us, Lord. There's no one who condemns those who are in Christ Jesus. And that is the beauty and glory of the gospel of grace. Oh Lord, I pray that Your people would hear this, that they would long to hear about Christ and His work of salvation. Lord, I pray, and I thank You for the faithfulness of Christ in His death, in His life, in His resurrection, and in His continued intercession on behalf of His people. Lord, I pray for those who shall hear. May You give them the grace to hear. May You imprint these words of the gospel, these words of the spirit to their hearts also that they may see Christ only as their city of refuge. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.